Hi, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> it's always that first person who says hello, and everyone follows. And so, so you're a leader. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. It really has been nice, uh, a blessing to me, to be with you all this month. And um, as I mentioned at the very beginning uh, of the month, um, I'm basically now, I'm not at a church, I'm not starting a church, um, but I started this nonprofit, and the work that we're trying to do is create a new way of doing church. So if that piques your curiosity at all, um, you could find uh, us online. Man, it's hot up here. <laughs> can't breathe. Um, our website is just newwinecollective.org if you want to uh, look at that. You can find me on social media. If you want to just follow along on our journey, that's a shameless plug. Uh, pretty much on everything, uh, just no TikTok. Uh, I don't do dances. Um, but uh, one of my all-time spiritual heroes is a pastor and author by the name of Eugene Peterson. Um, he's the guy with the beard. Uh, the guy next to him is nobody. You wouldn't know him. Um, his books on pastoral ministry actually have impacted me greatly and profoundly. But you might know him from uh, The Message, which was his popular paraphrase of the, modern, uh, of the, of the Bible in modern English. <clears throat> but uh, Eugene Peterson passed away a few years ago, and his son gave a eulogy at the funeral in which he described the, the way that Peterson was able to fool millions of people with all of his creative insights that he had offered throughout decades of ministry. Peterson fooled everyone into thinking that he was saying something new each week. When in reality, Peterson really only had one sermon. And Peterson's son said, uh, quote, they didn't know how simple it all was. Now, I'm not dying, hopefully, but similarly, I've also realized that I really only have one sermon. And it's really simple. And some of you have probably already figured out what it is over the course of these past few weeks. I actually haven't really been saying all that that's new each week. I've basically been saying the same thing in different ways. I'm not that complicated. And so since this is my last Sunday with you, I'm going to share a secret. This is my one sermon. And so if you're just joining us, we've been talking about what it means to be together. We've been learning about how to be the church from the very first church written about in Acts 2. And today I want to share with you the secret to growing your church. We want to talk about how to grow your church. And just to review, uh, Acts 2, starting verse 42, tells us this early group of Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And moreover, everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders that seemed to, make, uh, that seemed to mark this new spiritual community. It says the believers were together. And they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to those in need. And they met together every day in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And listen to this part. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And just imagine that. They enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily, which is amazing. 
Because it seems so different from what most churches are experiencing right now. I think it's safe to say that, generally speaking, Christians today are not enjoying the favor of all the people, right? In fact, it can feel like quite the opposite. Instead of being seen as salt and light of the world and being known by our love, Christians are often described as judgmental and hypocritical and closed-minded. And so these news stories of the top-down abusive leadership and cover-ups and scandals and corruption in religious institutions seem to surface on a regular basis now. And Christians, particularly evangelicals, are being shown as anti-science, bigoted, sexist, culturally irrelevant, and sometimes way worse. And doesn't it make you wonder, how can a movement that is based on such good news look and sound so bad? We need to acknowledge that some of the negative attention is well-deserved. There is a lot of stuff that is labeled Christian these days that looks nothing like the way of Jesus. Whether you agree or not, I think we can at least agree that Christianity has a pretty serious image problem. And many of you feel this problem very acutely in your workplaces, your classrooms, among your friends and family. We don't want to be known as those kinds of Christians, right? And so we learn to fly under the radar, don't rock the boat, just be nice and blend in. On top of the awkwardness of being a Christian these days... It seems like study after study all seem to point to the same downward trend, that church attendance has been declining rapidly over the past 20 years. It's dropped 20% in the last 20 years, which in any industry is a crisis. And the numbers for millennials are even lower. And it's still kind of early, but all evidence seems to point to religious affiliation for Gen Zers to take an even steeper nosedive. And all this can feel discouraging. It might seem like the Lord just isn't adding to our number daily, those who are being saved, right? At least not here and not now. So the question is, why not? I'm sure some of you may have opinions, but I think we can all agree that it's certainly not for a lack of trying. Christian ministries spend billions of dollars each year trying to grow. They buy books, they attend conferences, they hire experts and consultants, they invest in facilities and technology, all in order to drive growth. One church in Texas gave away cars, TVs, and other prizes just to get more people to come to their Easter service. And yet, despite all of that, the fastest growing churches in the world are not here in America. The land of celebrity pastors and giant stadium-sized megachurches. They're actually in places like Iran and China. They don't have stages, lights, lasers, haze machines. They're underground. They're small. And they're mostly led by women. Maybe they might even look a bit like the church did in Acts 2. 
somehow the early church had a simple way of living and loving that was winsome to outsiders. They didn't have any of the resources or the organizational or production expertise that we have now, yet they grew, they multiplied. And of course, having resources and expertise is not a bad thing by any means. They, they, they can be gifts from God, but perhaps the early Christians had something that went beyond technique or technology. Perhaps what they had was even more potent. What did they have? The answer is simple and obvious. But before we get into that, whenever we talk about church growth, we have to be aware that our tendency is to assume bigger means better. When my mother was alive and she was living in Korea, uh, she would call me on the phone and she would often manage, whatever we were talking about, she would manage to sneak in a seemingly innocuous question. She would ask, how is church? I say, oh, things are going pretty well, you know. How many people do you have now? And I'd be like, you know, mom, come on. We say, go big or go home. We value size and numbers. In churches, we measure the three Bs, budgets, buildings, and butts, right? Why? I mean, numbers can give us helpful data about the health of a church, but maybe it's also because we're insecure. Maybe we like things we can measure because counting and comparing appeals to our egos. If there are a lot of people, we think it must be good. And that's often true, but not always. Church growth gurus declare healthy things grow, implying that if you're not growing numerically, you must be doing something wrong. Yeah, healthy things grow, but so do a lot of unhealthy things. So I'm not so sure size is always the best metric that we should be using. According to Soren Kierkegaard, existentialist philosopher, the crowd is untruth. He wrote, to for, for to win a crowd is not so great a trick. One only needs some talent, a certain dose of untruth, and a little acquaintance with human passions. In other words, it's not that hard to draw a crowd, to be big and popular. It's not that hard to manipulate a crowd. Size can be an unreliable measure of whether we're doing the right thing. I would even go so far as to say that if our only goal is to be big and powerful, we might be following the way of empire rather than the way of Jesus the way of the world, not the kingdom of God. Because Jesus, the way Jesus described the kingdom of God is usually small. Small but potent. It is a tiny mustard seed that grows into a great tree. It is a little bit of yeast that works through a whole batch of dough. God's kingdom turns all of our worldly values and expectations upside down, right? God's kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit and the persecuted, not the proud and the powerful. The greatest in God's kingdom isn't the big shot celebrity pastor or preacher on the stage, but the small child in our midst. God's economy works differently from ours. 
Jesus himself never seemed too concerned with numbers or popularity. If we're measuring success by how many people we have, by the end of Jesus' life, Jesus was a complete failure. Almost all of his disciples left, except for a few women and John. So let's take a closer look at this growth that happens here uh, in Acts 2. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And notice it doesn't say they added to their number daily. It doesn't say their strategic plan or outreach program or new worship style added to their number. It doesn't say the popular preacher or the cool band or professional production quality added to their number. Don't get me wrong. These things actually kind of work. But the writer of Acts seems to be emphasizing who is doing the work here. The Lord added to their number. And these were not just consumers coming to watch a show. These were not just Christians moving from one church to another. These were people who were being saved. Which in Greek, it means that they were being rescued, healed. They were being made whole. People's lives were being transformed. So how'd they do it? They had no buildings, no professional pastors, no privilege or power, yet somehow they grew and they became this unstoppable movement. So what was it? What did they have that was so powerful and compelling? It's so simple and obvious, but here it is. Here is my one sermon. It's the only one I've got. It's the best one I've got. So you ready? And I bet you can say it with me. They had love. They loved one another. They ate together. They shared things in common. They welcomed foreigners and strangers into their homes. What led them to do these things? Love. But not a sentimental love. It, I mean a, an unstoppable Holy Spirit fire, sacrificial, barrier-breaking, guilt and shame-erasing reconciling and healing, lay down your life for your sister and brother, world-changing love. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But let me ask you, what did the apostles teach? They had no Bible yet, so they weren't doing Bible studies. And they had no developed doctrine, so what did they teach? The answer is they probably taught what Jesus told them to teach. And what did Jesus tell them to teach? Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And what did Jesus command? He commanded them to love one another, of course. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, right? This is my command. Love one another. Jesus said, go and make disciples and then teach them how to do this. I read a meditation this morning and the author asked, would you rather have a friend who's always right or always loving? Always with you, always connected in relationship. I don't know about you, but I would choose loving. But modern Christianity has focused so much on knowing and believing the right things. I believe the early Christians' main curriculum 
was not theological or doctrinal at all. All that stuff came much later. I believe that their main curriculum was much more practical. They learned how to follow Jesus. They learned how to do the things that Jesus did. They learned how to love and serve like Jesus. If there's one thing Christians are supposed to be good at, it's love. If there's one thing that should be our starting point and our end point, one thing that we're supposed to be known for, it's our love. And the most amazing part of it is that anyone can do it. A child can lead the way. In fact, that was Jesus' advice, right? It is true that today, churches may no longer be known or seen as places where people go to find acceptance and love. And it is true that there are many problems that the church is facing. And many of those problems are coming from the inside. And to be really honest, I have a lot of critiques when it comes to some of the ways that we do church right now. That's why I'm all about exploring new ways of doing things. But don't get me wrong. I still believe in the local church. I still believe in churches that do the slow, unglamorous, faithful work of loving and welcoming people into authentic spiritual community. Why? Because that's my story. I have always had a complicated relationship with church. As I mentioned before, I grew up on the mean streets of New York City. I'm just kidding, it was just an apartment building in Queens. But I was raised in church, and when I say that, I mean that my dad was the choir director, my mom was the Sunday school director, which meant I spent a lot of time at church. And that had both positive and negative effects on me. On one hand, I grew up learning about the Bible and Jesus. But on the other hand, I had a front row seat to a lot of internal church politics. And I saw at least three church splits before I even hit high school. I think it was three, but the details are fuzzy. Needless to say, I heard and saw a lot of things that confused my understanding of God and of church. For all the talk about God's goodness and love, I also saw an awful lot of gossip and slander. I saw power abused by people in authority. I saw pride that was disguised as spirituality. I saw hypocrisy and legalism, and as a result, I grew pretty skeptical and cynical of church early on. And so sometime in high school, I just kind of fell away. I believed in God and Jesus. I just wasn't sure it made that much of a difference. If Christians could be just as petty and prideful as anyone else, then I didn't understand how following Jesus could matter all that much. Maybe some of you can relate to some of that. And so for a few years, I was a bit lost searching for something, but not knowing what or where to find it. And of course, I'm leaving out a lot of details, otherwise we'll be here for a while. But the long story short of it is that in my rebellion, I became truant from high school for an entire year. I just didn't go to school. And by the time my parents finally found out, it was way too late to do anything about it. And so they basically just gave me a choice. They said, stay in New York, continue down this pathway, or move with them to Korea and 
start fresh. And so I chose to go to Korea. And so I repeated a year of high school just to make up for the time that I mostly hung around being a punk. But in Korea, things didn't really improve all that much. I pretty much just continued to hang around being a punk. And the truth is, I barely graduated high school. I was at the bottom of my class. And so when graduation came around and summer came around, I had not applied to any colleges. I didn't think you know, any place would accept me. I literally thought I had no future. Uh, my sister gave me an application to Gordon College, which is a Christian liberal arts school here in, um, up in the North Shore. And uh, by some mirror, I just kind of filled it out, whatever, nothing to lose. And they accepted me probably trying to fill a quota, but hey, it worked, right? And as kind of a leap of faith, I declared biblical studies as my major, mostly to satisfy my own skepticism. And I was not going to church at the time because I wasn't sure I believed in it. But because of, you know, friends and, you know, my girlfriend, I tried visiting a few churches, but it didn't work for me. They all reminded me too much of other churches that I'd been in, other churches that I'd seen. and I sensed that they were trying too hard to impress, and it just wasn't for me. I wasn't buying it. Finally, through another friend, I gave this small church one more try. And to be honest, it wasn't very good. The people were kind of socially awkward, but they tried. Music was eh. At the time, the church was run by a, a bunch of inexperienced seminarians, and so the sermons were meh. But I kept coming back. Why? Because the people were kind. They were real. They weren't pretending to be spiritual. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They were very vulnerable and honest in their brokenness. Yet they were accepting and they were genuinely loving. And somehow in the midst of that, I started to believe in church again. I started to believe that a church could be a safe and loving place. A place where a misfit like me could find belonging. A place where I could find God. That thing that I've been searching for all along really was love. But I needed that love to be real and tangible and proven, not just theoretical, not just talked about from up, up front. That is what a church can be. It can be the very hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ. A, a church can be a family, a home base, a place of safety and belonging. Friends, church works. It changes lives. It changed mine. But it helps to understand what a church really is at its essence. A church is a community centered in love. A church that, a community that practices love. That's how Jesus is going to show up. Not with flashy production or slick marketing or impressive anything. Those are nice to have. But the way Jesus really shows up is when we, the body of Christ, shows up to do the work of love in real face-to-face -face relationships. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's it. 
Everything else is extra. So the real secret to church growth is love. And by growth, I don't mean necessarily getting bigger, although that could happen. I mean growth as in becoming more loving, becoming more like Jesus together, which is what real spiritual maturity always looks like. A church is supposed to be a school of love, a place where we learn and practice how to be more loving. So we don't have to worry about numbers. Jesus never commanded us to grow. He commanded us to go, make disciples. In other words, we're supposed to bring that love of God into the world, our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, to the places where God has already placed us. In your own words, it's being a church without walls, right? Because a church isn't a building, it's not a weekly event, it's a loving community that turns toward one another and turns towards others in love. And so whether you've been here for one week or many years, my hope, my prayer for you is that you together will continue to grow, to be the kind of church that people are longing for, one that would embody the love of Christ and welcome people who are spiritually hungry. In that eulogy Eugene Peterson's son gave for his father, he said his father's one sermon was the same on every Sunday and in every book, and that his father told, told him that same sermon every night before bed. He said, God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. And I'd like to echo that message to you. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you, meaning he's pursuing you with an active love. He's not passively waiting for you to come to him. He's after you with a relentless love. And in closing, uh, I'd like to leave you with a blessing from John O'Donohue, an Irish poet, priest, and philosopher. And we've been talking all about what it means to be the church. And I've given you my one sermon. That's it. I'm done. It's about love. The key to being and doing church is relationships. And so it seems appropriate to leave you with this prayer for your friendships. The idea of spiritual friendships is very significant in Celtic spirituality. And at the end of this blessing, it uses an old Gaelic word, anamkara, which means soul friend, someone with whom you share your innermost self with. And my prayer is that each of you would, would find an anamkara, someone to journey with you, a spiritual companion. So I want to invite you to prayerfully listen and receive this blessing. And the words will be up on the screen so you can follow along. May you be blessed with good friends. May you learn to be a good friend to yourself. May you be able to journey to that place in your soul where there is great love, warmth, feeling, and forgiveness. May this change you. May it transfigure that which is negative, distant, or cold in you. 
May you be brought in to the real passion, kinship, and affinity of belonging. May you treasure your friends. May you be good to them, and may you be there for them. May they bring you all the blessings, challenges, truth, and light that you need for your journey. May you never be isolated. May you always be in the gentle nest of belonging with your Anamkara, your soul friend. Amen. <laughs>